You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. When I talk to people about the really big rewilding projects, I'm usually talking to conservationists in Africa. When asked to describe their vision of big, wild places with large herds and iconic carnivores, people often describe large parks in African countries. But there's a really big rewilding project happening right here in the lower 48 states of America. And that's what I'm excited to discuss with Dr. Daniel Kinka from American Prairie Reserve, a planned 3.2 million acre network of private and public lands in northeastern Montana, a very large chunk of the northern Great Plains. Daniel is American Prairie Reserve's Wildlife Restoration Manager, and his primary responsibilities include restoring and monitoring wildlife on the reserve and managing the wildlife-friendly ranching program, Wild Sky. He also acts as a liaison to scientists conducting research at American Prairie. He joined American Prairie in 2018, shortly after completing his doctoral degree in ecology at Utah State University. American Prairie Reserve's mission is to create the largest wildlife refuge in the continental United States in the lower 48. And that will be a refuge for both people and wildlife or or biodiversity uh, managed in perpetuity for the benefit of people and wildlife. Where we work, this area of the Northern Great Plains in central Montana uh, is, is part of what we call the Northern Great Plains ecosystem that kind of goes from Montana and spans the border into Canada and touches on Alberta and Saskatchewan the northern part of the Great Plains that, that stretch the entire continent of North, North America. And the reason why we work there is grasslands, temperate grasslands, savannas, prairies, uh, th- these are similar terms, are the least protected biome on the planet. So there's less than 5% protection for, for these places. And we can get into what that protection means, but, but basically, particularly in North America, particularly in the United States, we did a decent job protecting from development Areas of you know pristine, quote unquote pristine natural beauty, things like mountains and geysers and canyons, that sort of thing. We didn't have a lot of focus on, I think, biodiversity, particularly the large mammalian biodiversity that was kind of, in my mind, as an ecologist, part of the gem of the continent, right? The the the, the you know your 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 bison and your elk and your bighorn sheep and your grizzly bears and your wolves, all the way down to prairie dogs, black-footed ferrets, that sort of thing. There was calls for that in the early 1800s by some of the early kind of white settlers, but it just never came to be. And that story of North America, writ large across across the globe, looks very, very similar. Grasslands, as it turns out, are places where people like to live and have lived for a very long time. The wetter ones, wetter than we are, make pretty productive farmland. Um, and the drier ones, more like we are, are seen as kind of productive rangelands throughout the whole world. And so probably as a result of that and a couple other things, we haven't done a very good job protecting them. We lose prairie grassland habitat. It's more imperiled than things like coral reefs, things like rainforest that we hear a lot more about. And in fact, so much so that early studies found that there's really only four temperate grasslands on this planet that are large enough and intact enough to even warrant serious considerations for ecosystem level protections, ecosystem level conservation. 
Those are the Kazakh step, the Kazakh step, the Mongolian step, the Patagonian step, and the Northern Great Plains, which I mentioned at the top. And so American Prairie Reserve's mission is to help conserve some of that biodiversity, some of that wildness that it still exists and can exist again in a, in, in a very close to wild state in the near future, right in the middle of the Northern Great Plains in central Montana. No small task, but what an important one. It's like being a museum curator and handling the most priceless, unique individual things known to humankind. In other ways, it's complicated. You mentioned, you know, being, feeling in some way responsible or, or, or assigning yourself the task of being some kind of custodian or, or like a curator of a place. And I think that's absolutely accurate. But imagine like that natural history museum or whatever metaphor you want, you know, post earthquake. So the job is like everything's on the floor and you mm. recognize the importance of all of those components, but you got to put them back the way they were. And there's very little left to tell you kind of what the best way to do that is. You, you have an image in your mind of what it, what it looked like, you know, pre-earthquake or pre-disaster. Mm. Um, but there's, 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 there's not a lot. We, we have a lot of good science and rewilding. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over that, but there's still so much left to understand questions that we just don't know the answer to about what the best way to, kind of rebuild the thing is that that's the kind of challenge that I like to deal with. And to the extent that I can speak for my colleagues, I think we, I think we all like to do that, but man, what a, what a task, right? Cause you yeah. recognize the monumental importance of it, both, you know, anthropologically, sociologically, ecologically, and, and recognize the weight of that task that we set out for ourselves and yet still need to find a way to do it without guidelines, but it, it, it's a daunting task sometimes. How much do you have to let nature tell you the things you don't know? But isn't there some place in there that you have to, you have to step back and put your hands on your hips and go, well, I mean, the rest now is up to nature and I can't wait to see what she does because I have no idea where we go from here. There's an Aldo Leopold quote, I think, right? One, one of many, right? This idea that like the first rule of any kind of intelligent tinkering is to like retain all the parts and pieces. I'm, yes. I'm paraphrasing something like that. Right. And I, I think you kind of speak to that. And I, I definitely think that fits into the kind of the prayer reserve model, the, the, the thesis that we operate under, which is the first step is to just put all the ingredients back there, right? Yeah. You need the biodiversity to support the resilience of the place so that those natural processes that we know are important can take hold again. And so we think about things like, you know, ecosystem engineers, the keystone species that, that build and preserve this kind of heterogeneity and diversity on the landscape that we know in turn supports greater levels of biodiversity, which in turn supports greater levels of resilience. And so the prairies have always been this place that's kind of has an enormous amount of stochasticity in the natural system, right? Like it gets extremely cold, it gets extremely hot, it can have droughts that last for decades. Typically you would have had wildfires burning, uh, grazing at an incredible scale by wild ungulates that looks almost chaotic at some point, right? And all of those kind of chaotic or stochastic features combined to create a very, very variable landscape, but in an interesting, like almost ironic way, I think it's that heterogeneity that, that promotes the resilience, right? The heterogeneity gives space for all these different, all these different ecological niches for different parts of biodiversity to fill. And then of course that biodiversity leads to a resilience. So when you talk about kind of the rewilding process, I think you're right. I think the first step, but the first thing that we need to do is acquire the land base, right? You need you need some kind of security and, it, and it's gotta be big because I, I just mentioned prairie ecosystems work on, on large level scales, right? You know, 
historically part of it would have burned part of it would have flooded grazing ungulates need somewhere to go to get away from that and in the process of grazing they're creating these other habitats so apr needs to be we think scientists tell us about 3.2 million acres so that's the size of yellowstone national park and glacier national park combined about the size of the state of connecticut and you need a land base that's that's truly that big to even think about having an ecologically meaningful prairie, an ecologically functioning, fully functioning ecological prairie ecosystem, right? And then in addition to that, the next step is is the rewilding, right? How do we put all of those pieces back together? And then I, I think to your point, Jack, although we, we've got a little ways to, to go before we get there, is to, to then kind of stand back and take a look and say, okay, We've got all the all the pieces are back together. You know that 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 pocket watch is kind of reassembled in the way that the best way that we can think that it fits together. Maybe now we take a step back and we say, uh, okay, okay, we we got to have a little bit of faith that these processes, these interactions, will function again that the way where they were supposed to, and and have a kind of a, a careful and a light touch to 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 guide things to maintain that biodiversity and that resilience within the system. Two housekeeping notes here. Lest yep. anyone begin to yawn when we say the word yeah. prairie, I want everybody <laughs> right now uh, not to leave this podcast wherever you're listening to it, but open up a browser and go to AmericanPrairie.org and disabuse yourselves of any idea that you may have uh, of what a prairie ecosystem looks like, because you're about to see some of the most beautiful stuff you've ever seen if you haven't really taking a look at this part of the world. I'm sitting here looking at it, thinking, why do so many people go to Africa to experience <laughs> the wide open David Attenborough kind of, you know, I mean, it's beautiful and I don't want to put anybody down. I have lots of friends in right. Africa, right. many of whom have been on this show. But if you didn't want to make that trip, there and I know they're not the same exactly uh, ecosystems or anything like that, but my goodness, I get that feeling that you don't typically get when you look at American wide open spaces that are typically very mountainous. What we protect is typically rocks and ice, and that's what always gets the attention. That's another reason I wanted to talk to you um, and do anything I can to to build up your guys' work in any way that's possible because. This is not the kind of place that everybody's used to when we talk about things on this show, um, typically, or when you get a brochure or a newsletter in the mail from your favorite conservation organization. They're going to have uh, an eagle flying over a mountain, uh, ponderosa pines, forests, and all of that kind of stuff, but typically not this. And so I really want to make sure that people know. And the other thing is, of that 3.2 million acres, you're around 420,000 with uh, federal and uh, private lands. So that's not so bad. I mean, that's a really big chunk. It's already bigger hole. than Grand Teton National Park. I, I mean, we're, we're on the way, right? And yeah. then you think about the, the American Prairie Project, include, that 3.2 million acres is intended to include a bunch of public lands, right? In fact, the majority, the vast majority of it will be public land that already exists as public land. APR just needs to kind of like glue it together, right? Like um, you piece together some of the, the deeded parcels and they are few in that part of the country that kind of hold those, could hold those public lands together as a, as a kind of unified whole, a unified kind of rewilding project, a, a place for nature. 
But yeah, we've got about 100,000 deeded acres, land that we own outright right now, plus another 300 or so leased acres, so primarily BLM, Bureau of Land Management land that we, we have the grazing leases for and a little bit of DNRC or Montana state lands um, that we have grazing leases for as well. And so that's, that's the 420,000 acres that you mentioned. You add that to the 1.1 million acres of the Charlie Russell National Wildlife Refuge around which APR is being built. And you have something close to like almost a million and a half acres that is in one way or another set aside for wildlife or put another way set aside for, for biodiversity, right? Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's the goal. So, so yeah, it, 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 we're, we're a little less than halfway to the goal, even including the CMR. So we, we, we have quite a bit of ways to go and there's other kind of intricacies beyond just the land model that need to be addressed. But yeah, it's, it's a place that, that people can visit now. And, and there's quite a bit of, bit of it to visit actually. Um, so yeah, the, the, the mission 20 years on and we, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary is well underway. It's not just a pipe dream at this point. There, there's quite a bit of land that's already being managed for this biodiversity management, as opposed to kind of commodity production, which would have been the, the former state of those lands. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I can't think of a better example of a real life version of the ABCs of rewilding, you know, yeah. in terms of connectivity using, you know, leveraged private lands to buffer and connect uh, the, the larger chunks of public lands. How big is your staff in the summers. I imagine it balloons uh, quite a bit with all the studies that you do and all the help that you need doing those studies. Yeah, maybe not as big as you would think, considering the size that the reserve already is. We have about 30 full-time staff and that can balloon to up to around 45, 50, including temporary staff to come in in the summer. And that's just people that, you know, wear the APR, wear the American Prairie name tag, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't include, we don't, do science in-house as an institution, knowing that kind of we have a different responsibility, a different mission that we've set out to actually kind of use the best available science to do it. But mm -hmm. we need to keep generating that science. And so we do that through partnerships, primarily now with the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, but also with a number of universities, both local in Montana and then throughout the United States as well. So we've got graduate students and postdocs and um, Smithsonian researchers and some agency folks as well. And none of those people kind of, you know, quote unquote, where the American Prairie hat. They're not on the payroll, so to speak. But mm -hmm. if you if you include those people, yes, there, there's quite a number of people now. And I, I keep trying to grow that actually to, to, to get more people, more scientists, more researchers come to this place. Because the more we know about it, the more attention it attracts, right? People think of Yellowstone mm -hmm. now, not as just the first national park, but as kind of a research laboratory. I would love to have people think of American Prairie the same way, but then also to help inform us, you know, science and management is a two-way street, right? We can work directly with these scientists, some of the best scientists in the world, to tell them these are the things that we need to know. We think we need to know as managers to do a better job of rewilding, conserving this place. Can you help us figure this out? And they say, absolutely. And by the way, have you thought about X, Y, and Z? And we say, no, because <laughs> that's not mm -hmm. that's not our, our that's not our role, right? We're, we're we're busy with you know shovels and backhoes and going to public meetings and thinking about social caring capacity. And, and maybe we missed something and the scientists will say, well, I think this is a really important point, you know, Danny, whoever, 
that you're missing. Can can we do this? Can can we look at you know the interactions of you know pollinator communities and how how that mixes with a bison herd, et cetera, et cetera. What are some of the cool things that have been discovered as a result of any of the studies, any of the numbers that you could pull from? There's some really interesting findings. I think one of the primary ones being kind of the difference between bison and cattle and how they operate as grazers. Now you can, European domesticated cattle can be substituted in many ways for a wild ungulate, can kind of serve as a proxy for a bison, the indigenous grazer on, 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 the, on the continent. It takes careful management. And thankfully there are some ranchers out there that are doing these really cool novel progressive. I, I know that term can be pejorative in circum, certain circles, but like from my, I mean that as a compliment, doing these things that, that mimic nature and isn't that cool because there's always going to be, well, in my lifetime, there will always be more cows than bison in North America. And so the, to the extent that we can make the cows act like bison, isn't that great um, for the ecosystem and for biodiversity? But in addition to that, you know, we've had some graduate student projects, some scientists come out and looked and said, you know, these, these animals are, while bison, well, excuse me, while cattle can do a, a decent job mimicking this, there's some stuff that, that cattle just won't do. You can't teach a cattle to, to you can't teach a cow to wallow like a bison does, which is kind of the way they roll around in the dirt. They do this for a number of reasons, probably to like shed ectoparasites, uh, you know, like fleas, ticks, stuff like that. Um, irritants, mosquitoes, they roll around. The, the bulls also do it closer to the breeding season. They, they kind of like pee in a hole, roll around in it, make themselves big and sticky and stinky. Um, apparently this attracts the lady bison. This is a breakdown between human and, and, and bison understandings of how mating rituals work, but apparently it works for them. Um, so you get these <laughs> persistent kind of holes on the landscape, right? These wallows, these depressions. You can't teach a cow to do that, but we're learning more and more that these things are really important for kind of this, this low, not low level, but like, like uh, smaller, um, like a microscopic biodiversity, right? Not, not always exclusively microscopic, but like small things, right? Depend on these wallows, all kinds of like invertebrates, insects are using these as little ephemeral wetlands because these wallows collect water the, the grassland communities that grow in a halo around these things actually to have seem to have a different kind of species composition than you see in the rest of the grasslands combined. And so there's features like that that you're like, wow, well, if we, you know, what does that mean for the dung beetles and certain, you know, ground nesting bees and stuff that, that haven't had, had access to these things for 100, 120 years, 150 years more in some cases, right? Because cows just don't do this. And what does that mean for the ecosystem at kind of a lower, like a foundation, foundational level? We also know and learned from studies that went on in the Prairie Reserve that, you know, bison will go significantly farther from a water source naturally to graze. Cows don't do this. Now, that is something that can be mimicked, right? A cattle producer, if they're doing their job, you know, to the best of their ability, using the best available science can say, okay, well, I, I, the cows aren't going to go that far from the water, but I need to get them to graze farther into the pasture. Like I'll use salt blocks or create different water sources. They, they've been doing this for a long time, but bison just do this on their own. So now we see, oh, cool, this indigenous grazer to North America is, 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 is like built, is evolved, maybe not surprisingly, to, to graze these landscapes in the way that, that, is, that is most beneficial to the landscape itself. What else? There's another story that I really like, you know, a researcher that we work with, Sam Fuhlendorf, um, has got it a little bit of this, not just at uh, American Prairie Reserve, the Charlie Russell Refuge, but also back in his home country in, uh, uh, in Oklahoma, um, where he's uh, studying fire effects. He does a lot of kind of pyrrhic herbivory, so how, how wildfire or fire interacts with these large grazers. And uh, it's just one of my favorite stories. Uh, through some of his research and the research of others, they, they, they found that, you know, fire return cycles on the prairie, you know, given the kind of like geo 
chemical features of the landscape, the amount of grass that's produced. You know, you don't get a lot of rainfall there. We're talking about a region that gets like 13 inches of rainfall on average or something like that. This is the short grass prairie. It's it's not as, as lush as the prairies that would have existed farther to our east. So the fire return cycle is not actually predicted to be that high because, you know, the soils and the rainfall don't support a lot of, you know, mass buildup of grass. We don't think. If, you, if we look at, if we take soil core samples and we actually say, well, what was the actual fire return cycle, you know, pre-contact, pre, pre right? Like, or, or like, you know, pre-Lewis pre and Clark, right? Prior to 1800. Do we, do we see fire return cycles based on where the kind of ash builds up in the core samples? Is it returning at the same rate as predicted, which is, you know, I don't know, once a generation or something like that. And, and the answer is actually, no, it, it comes, it came back much more frequently fire return cycles on the prairie where we are seem to be closer to like four or five years. And the only explanation for that is indigenous peoples, the human beings that populated the North American continent for at least 13,000 years, were driving these re re fire return cycles faster than they would have happened otherwise. And probably for a number of reasons, right? We know that after fire, the grazers are attracted back. So you can they can use this as a way to kind of either bring game back or drive game to other places, maybe as a tactic of war. They can use it to green things. There's just a lot of reasons why you would do this. But the point is, this is a human ecosystem. Like people have been a fundamental, not just a nominal, but a fundamental, like a functioning part, a kind of a keystone species in this ecosystem forever, for as long as there's been kind of modern people, right? And and isn't that neat? Because I, I just think that really speaks to these new ideas of ecology that aren't, you know, I don't believe in wilderness, but I believe in wildness, right? And this is this is a concept that includes people now as, as opposed to excluding them. And so I'm really interested in science that can tell us more about what the role of people was in these ecosystems, right? A lot of times mountains were only visited temporarily by peoples. It's really tough to live above 10,000 feet in the winter in the Rocky Mountains, but these prairie landscapes were probably continuously inhabited. And I think we really have to, if we're doing our jobs properly, think about how those are human ecosystems and have always been human ecosystems if we're going to do our job right to kind of rewild the place. That we've ever demonstrated an ability to be a lot more in line with our surroundings is heartening. Right. Yes. I mean, it's it's not a, a, a bleak message for people who are like, yeah, but we need places that just are for nature. Well, yeah, of course. Sure, we do. Um, that's just ethically, if not biologically, the right thing. But but when you're talking about grand scales where you can't avoid human habitation and and, uh, you know, you still have to have some sort of a solution that works for all involved. I mean, it, that's possible, right? Even in the modern era, like what, what would have to change that we're doing now that would bring it as closely in line with something that's of a nominal existence? Everybody's doing all right. Everything's pretty well balanced. The idea is, again, going back to this idea of kind of putting the pieces together, right? I, 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 think, I think we can, Jack, and I, I think we should think about human ecologies more going forward. And not this idea of kind of walled Edens. This is not, I'm not criticizing anybody for doing the conservation work that's vitally important across the globe. But I think particularly for we all, where we are, there's so much that we can learn from like the continuous habitation of the plains for, you know, the last 13 to 15,000 years, which in terms of ecological rewilding is the only time frame that we really care about, right? A lot before that, you go into the Pleistocene, you've got all kinds of wildlife, particularly mammals, like big giant stuff, none of which walks the earth anymore, right? American Prairie is not a Pleistocene rewilding project. It doesn't have to be. 
because all of the biodiversity that has existed for the last 13,000 years or so still exists, even if it doesn't exist on the plains, right? There weren't any bison on the place where American Prairie Reserve sits until 15 years ago. Since for, for 150 years, there hadn't been until 15 years ago, right? Rewilded species. Fort Belknap Indian Reservation, our close partners and close neighbors that are right across the highway from us, they reintroduced bison in the 70s. Um, so they're ahead of us. And we have a lot to learn from those kind of indigenous um, rewilding efforts as well, kind of mimicking those to the extent that we can. But these are, these are species that are brought back, right? The swift fox, we're undergoing a project with Smithsonian and Fort Belknap Indian community right now that's reintroducing swift fox, right? They exist north of us and they exist south of us. They've been kind of locally extinct, extirpated in the region. We're undergoing a rewilding project right now to reintroduce this species back to the plains, the endemic fox species of the plains. It's like the size of a house cat. It's a very non, uh, it's not scary. <laughs> it's yeah. easy wildlife to think about rewilding, right? They eat like bugs and prairie dogs. So they yeah. were killed off on accident as a byproduct of poisoning and trapping for things like wolves and coyotes. Nobody really had a problem with them to begin with. So this is a species we can bring back even though it's absent, but it exists. <laughs> but this, this is a, these are positive rewilding stories, right? Same thing with black-footed ferrets. They're much they're difficult to rewild because we need more prairie dogs and there's just too few prairie dogs and prairie dogs still remain unprotected. You can shoot and kill them with, you don't need a, a uh, you don't need a tag. There's no, there's, there's no licensing involved in that in the state of Montana. They're also extremely susceptible to the sylvatic plague, which is a non-native disease that made its way to North America, again, accidentally, but the huge impact on prairie dog populations. So Ferrets only eat prairie dogs for the most part. If you want ferrets, you got to have a lot of prairie dogs. And so another kind of like almost accidentally extirpated species that we're working really hard to, to kind of rewild. What, what's the plan look like for that? But the point is, you know, whether, you know, ferrets, swift foxes, wolves, grizzly bears, and previously bison, some of the only species that were kind of missing from the ecosystem. But one thing you'll notice about all five of those is, is that they do exist. None of these species are extinct on the planet. They're just extirpated from the region. And so one of the things I think is most hopeful about American Prairie is we don't have to consider de-extinction. We don't have to think about like novel trophic rewilding where we're bringing in some weird species from South America to fill a niche space of an extinct North American species. We don't have to do all of that, right? I, the, the previous wild state of the prairie was like 150 years ago. And I use the term wild to mean like biodiverse, you know, com, uh, complete from a biodiversity perspective. People and all the wildlife that would have called the place home for the last, uh, you know, 13,000 years or so. And ecosystems are dynamic. Populations fluctuate. That's normal. That's part of ecology, right? But everything was there. That's very close. 150 years ago isn't that long ago. My, I feel my colleagues that are working in, in places of Europe, their, their previous wild states are like thousands of years, 8,000 yeah. years ago, right? Yeah. And they have to think about, oh, how do you rebuild an ecosystem when just so much of it is just gone? And, and I they're, think one they're, of the- They're talking yo, about go ahead. surrogates too. All the time yes, they're talking right. about surrogates for, for animals yep. that don't exist anymore. Exactly. That's right. And and again, I'm not, I'm not criticized. I, I'm thankful that to. we don't have, they have to, yeah. yeah, but we don't, which I think is one of the reasons that makes American Prairie so compelling is it's just like, oh, we're so close to this, right? Like it's tragic that we lost it, but it is rebuildable. I think after condors and how hard that was, yeah, um, Mexican wolves, how hard that was with this mm -hmm. tiny, tiny original population. So that's why everybody that hears about you is rooting so hard for American Prairie. Most people, when they hear about it, they never even imagined it. something like this exists. If I'm talking to a fourth grade class, right? 
and I say, close your eyes and, and imagine the you know, African Serengeti. Like, what do you see? You don't have to have ever been to the Serengeti. Like all you've got to see is one Attenborough nature documentary, mm -hmm. right? To see like the wildebeests and the giraffes and all that stuff running lions and stuff. It's very easy to picture. Almost anybody anywhere in the world, I think can do this. If I ask that same fourth grade class, now close your eyes and you imagine an American prairie. Imagine the Northern Great Plains. What do you see? I'm very, very lucky if I ever hear anything besides cows, a fence, little house on the prairie, some kind of homestead, maybe a red barn. Like it's, it's very, very difficult for people to conjure images of bison and Native American peoples and wolves and grizzly bears and bighorn sheep and uh, elk and pronghorn and deer and black-footed ferrets and swift fox and prairie dogs from Horizon Horizon and all these things that were there very, very recently and are not anymore. Rewilding is so much more difficult when we don't even have a cultural memory of what the place used to look like. We've got thousands of years of native oral tradition that tells us this is the case, but we've also got the accounts of people like Lewis and Clark. You've got all the paintings of Charlie Russell. You've got the paintings of George Catlin. You've got the writings of, uh, of Audubon. All these people, not that long ago, were talking about how incredible this place is. We need to preserve this biodiversity, but we undid it so quickly that I don't think, at least amongst the you know European descendants in North America, have a memory of what that place looked like. And it's very difficult to get people on board with rewilding if you can't get them to imagine a wild American prairie. And so many days, most days, I feel that this is my job, right? How do I paint that picture? How, how can I describe what Charlie Russell painted, right? In a way that gets people excited about biodiversity. This is a part of our you know, natural heritage can exist again and existed very recently. It's it's doable to 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 build that back and live, you know, modern productive human lifestyles alongside that in a way that's that 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 that's good for everybody, humans and wildlife, and does not have to come at a cost for anybody, people or wildlife. You asked a question about connectivity, and I think. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned a couple of times that American Prairie needs to be big, right? Like we need, it needs to be big to accommodate for stochasticity, variability in the ecosystem. Bison need a lot of space to roam, especially if you're talking about a herd of a thousands, not just a hundred or a dozen bison or something like that. They need space to do the ecological work that they do. In terms of rewilding, right? Which we haven't talked a little, a lot about how we, how we do that. You, you need connectivity, right? Bison, Montana's weird in the sense that Monta even though bison are a national mammal, they're considered livestock in the state of Montana, which means we can buy them. We can buy them and we can graze them the same way our neighbors graze cattle and they are under the jurisdiction of the Department of Livestock, not the Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, right? So rewilding there looks easy. We got to follow the rules that any other agricultural producer follows, but we, can, we own the bison. For everything else, we're not a wildlife agency. And I don't think we should be. And so we have to think about other creative ways to do rewilding. Now you can do that like, like Smithsonian did it with Swift Fox, operating with a sovereign nation that is the Fort Belknap Indian community to say, okay, we have to think very deliberately about how we design a rewilding product. Are we gonna pick these things up from Colorado and Wyoming? We're gonna transport them across the border. Mountains apart, paperwork, right? But it's doable. I know Jack, you worked on some of the wolf recovery stuff early on. Those are species that we can't reintroduce and I don't think there's very much palatability for people to, to think about a hard reintroduction of something like a wolf or a grizzly bear. 
just look at the legislation that's passed in Montana and Idaho over the last year, right? Like it's biologists who I have an enormous amount of respect for, like heroes of mine who are about to retire because 20 years later, we didn't we do a good job, right? There's wolves in North America again, in the lower 48, in, in, the, in the Rocky Mountains, in Yellowstone, in central Idaho, life's career, we did it, good job, I'm out, good luck next generation, right? And then with the stroke of a pen, legislatures can undo that, right? And I'm not criticizing my predecessors, but it's like hard reintroductions. This is something they're going to be subject to. Instead, yeah. what I think you see happening at American Prairie is wolves migrating north primarily from the Yellowstone ecosystem and grizzly bears migrating eastward from the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem and kind of auto rewilding basically. Mm -hmm. Their habitats are filling up, uh, carrying, natural carrying capacity seem to be high. And so we see what any ecologist would tell you that they should predict is these dispersing animals looking for a new habitat. And both species seem to be looking towards the prairies, their native homes, right? Remember, Lewis and Clark saw way more wolves and grizzly bears in the plains than they did in the mountains. It's understandable that they're following these river corridors back to central Montana, back to the Fort Peck Reservoir, back to the Charlie Russell National Wildlife Refuge. And so rewilding then is not dudes in helicopters and trucks moving wildlife around it's saying oh man through all of this good work of conservation and a little bit of public tolerance we see wildlife rewilding themselves in some cases what can we do to make that sticky how can i work with the neighboring communities to say we there are there are people that live with these large carnivores we know there's a way to do this safely securely in a way that's to the benefit of the wildlife and the people can we can we start building those things into the system now as opposed to later when they get here that's that's what rewilding looks like i think in a lot of north america now is social carrying capacity how, how do you work with people to think about telling stories about wild what a wild northern great plains used to look like and promoting tolerance for living alongside wildlife so that we can have wildness again without having to create some kind of wall to eden or wilderness that's where we say uh, the animals go here and the people go here and, and they can't mix. That I think that's what rewilding looks like in a modern context. American Prairie Reserve is open 365 days a year. There's no price of admission. We want people to come and enjoy and see this, right? To my point, Jack, about getting people to remember culture, that, that restore that cultural memory, mm -hmm. part of that comes from being able to visit because when you visit, you create a connection to the place. And when you create a connection to the place, you have the ability to love and protect the place. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time. It was so great to finally connect with you and the organization. My pleasure, Jack. Thank you for having me. Thank you for highlighting American Prairie Reserve. I'm happy to come back anytime that you'd like. And uh, thanks to the listeners for listening. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.